one of the pastors here. Hope you can come to that conference. If money's tight right now, that is no big deal at all. We've got scholarship opportunity, so don't let that inhibit your participation in coming. Someone might say, well, why, why do we have to pay for that? Um, we're covering the cost to get Chris and his wife and 18-month-old here from Indiana, and we're going to give him an honorarium because he's going to come and serve for several days, so we want to be able to bless him with a gift. Uh, Jake just snuggled up next to me and put his arm around me and said, I love you, Dad. And I just heard the Lord say, that's worship. That is like worship. We get to get close to the Father and put our arm around the Father and say, I love you today. I love you. You love me, I love you back. That is worship. Now that's not irreverent, right? There's a time to be on our face before the Father and the Son, the Lord of the universe. But there's also a time to get up close and to just say, Abba. I love you. Papa, I love you. You're so good to me. So more, more of that. So this morning, we're in a week five of our series, Lord, Do It Again. And we've been looking at revivals in scripture and in history. Last week, we looked at Pentecost as a model of what happens when revival occurs. We looked at the word of God and revival. We looked at the prophetic ministry of Jesus and how when he heard from the father and spoke to the woman at the well, it ignited something in her heart. She went back to her friends and family and revival broke out in that Samaritan village. And we also started this whole series off by looking at the glory of God and revival. Some people might say, well, why are we spending seven weeks looking at revival? And I would say because scripture urges us to. We're seeing examples of it just in the few that we looked at, two Old Testament passages and two New Testament passages in salvation history, the history of God's work. Revivals happen. And scripture suggests that and Jesus very deliberately says in Matthew 6, when you pray, Actually, when you're fasting and praying, pray in this way. And what's Jesus say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And so we've been seeing that that actually is a revival prayer. We're asking for the kingdom of God to break through, for the will of God to come and transform us, our families, our neighborhoods. And so Jesus, in that sense, is teaching us to pray for revival, and so we're obeying scripture. A second reason that we're lingering with this topic, again, whether we say revival, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, kingdom breakthrough, these are all synonymous terms. A second reason, my friends, is because we are powerless. No programs, no teaching, no worship, means anything without the power of God. We are absolutely powerless. So I stand in front of us today to remind us that we do not have what it takes. 
And so crying out for God to break through reminds us of that. We're saying, Lord of heaven and earth, you are the only one who has what we need. You are the only one who has what this moment needs right now in our culture. Only you. And we're desperate. So we need you to break through, as you did in the history of the church, those moments. So I want us, friends, to be desperate. We should embrace that sense of looking inward. And it's not self-loathing, but it's an acknowledgement that we're bankrupt. And if we, we're not careful to acknowledge that, then we start mustering up our own strength or relying on programs, relying on certain things other than the presence and power of God. And so we are looking at this because we need God. We need a breakthrough in this moment. Today we're going to look at the first of three revivals in U.S. history. Might be a peculiar thing to do on a Sunday morning in church, but you'll see what we're going to do for the next three weeks is we're going to take some historical moments that were also desperate and where people cried out to God with fasting and prayer and longing and a sense of their need and God broke through. And we're going to look at three of those instances. And then what we're going to also do is look at a biblical text that emerged in each of those moments. So we're going to look at the Great Awakening really in the 1740s this morning. And then we're going to look at a text that one of the key leaders, Jonathan Edwards, used in that revival moment. I want to say this too. Um, last year in May, I shared about a vision I had, an encounter with the Lord. And in that vision, the Lord showed me these three historical moments this was 26 years ago that I had this in 1994. I shared it last year. And in this encounter with God, the Lord spoke about a greater awakening that was coming. And then he spoke about something that would surpass the Pentecostal movement and the Azusa Street revival in the early 1900s. And then we would see something greater than the Jesus People movement in the 1960s and 70s. So I want us to look at these not as, hey, let's get back to the past. Let's look at a relic in a museum and go, wow, that was awesome. No, let's say, maybe these are the prelude to what God wants to do in the future. Amen? So we, we look at these things with appreciation and value, and we can learn and glean wisdom. But at the same time, we say, Lord, do it again. Do something greater. Don't think that the Lord initiated Pentecost and said, well, that was wonderful, launched the church, and now that's it. No, the church is the place of ongoing Pentecost. When we get together, we expect the power and presence of the Holy Spirit as they experienced at Pentecost, but this thing has gone worldwide now. Every nation, every people group is being impacted by that revival in the first century. So today, I want us to look at a few things here. I want us to look at the historical context, and some of you might just hear that word history and tune out. Bear with me. This is interesting stuff. We're going to look at the historical context of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. Then we're going to zero in and look at a couple of leaders that were primary 
in the Great Awakening. And then we're going to look at this biblical text from 1 John 4, which Jonathan Edwards utilized. Um, I, I want to say this up front, too, and something like this. I've drawn from helpful sources. I've looked at the writings of Jonathan Edwards. I've used this guy named Thomas Kidd at Baylor University. He's a, a great scholar on the Great Awakening. And then Oklahoma's very own Sam Storms. He has a great book called Signs of the Spirit, an interpretation of Jonathan Edwards' religious affections. So I want to acknowledge that I'm indebted to the scholarship of other people who've devoted their lives to studying this movement that we're going to look at. So let's begin. Let's look at uh, the historical context here, the story that's unfolding that we're going to look at briefly. It begins in 1735 in the American colonies. If we could put that up there, and I'll explain that in a moment. This is roughly 40 years before the American Revolution, and what happened gave birth to American evangelical Christianity, and it influenced American culture, and it prepared the colonists for revolution. So this is a significant moment in American history, and you can see on the map there, it's got the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the New England area, I've put a red arrow. This was the stomping ground of Jonathan Edwards, and as we'll see in a moment, George Whitfield. And so that area, you can imagine where the red arrow is pointing, is on fire in the 1730s and 40s. The Spirit of God is being poured out. God is visiting. And so Jonathan Edwards and his family and George Whitfield are in the midst of an ongoing visitation of God. And much of this was precipitated. Edwards was burdened. Jonathan Edwards, he was in academic circles and he looked around and he said, what is happening? People are losing their faith. They're in the fog of the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, it was really worshiping human reason. We're smart enough to figure things out. We can intellectualize the Bible. We can intellectualize God. And frankly, we don't really need God. All of this supernatural stuff is hocus pocus. And so Jonathan Edwards is looking around in this cultural context and he's watching the implications for the children and the youth and he's saying, Lord, enough. Would you visit our towns and cities and bring people back to yourself? Would you fight against the spirit of deism that there is no God or that there's a God who's disinterested? Sound familiar? This was the 1730s and 1740s, and Edwards and his colleagues began to fast and pray and seek God, and God heard, and God moved. To such an extent that Edwards began to write letters to other pastors, and these letters were circulated, and one letter went all the way to London, and there was a pastor there that said, I can't even describe what your letter did for me and my congregation and other pastors. Would you please write more, Jonathan Edwards? And so Jonathan Edwards wrote a detailed account of what was happening in 1736. And listen, he's not uh, very good at short titles, but this is what he was writing in 1736. You with me? A faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundred souls in Northampton and the neighboring towns and villages of the county of Hampshire in the province 
of Massachusetts Bay in New England. That is his title. In short, this was the narrative of an ongoing revival and visitation of the Holy Spirit that rocked those colonies. That is what he was writing about, and his letters and his works spread like wildfire. And what he explains in his writings is that this was something that was in motion, that before him, there had been moments, trickles, movements of the move of God. And he wrote about one in particular that happened in 1733 that he had learned about, where for six months, the presence of God rested on this region. And they had 300 young people get saved in a period of six months. And there were only 1,100 in that population, young people. So we're talking 300 of 1,100 young people swept into this move of God and drawn into the church. And what would happen, Edwards would say, the young people have a keen way of responding to the presence of God and then carrying it and impacting the older folks. And so Edwards was writing about that. We're going to look in more detail at some of the other characteristics of this great awakening, but I want to stop for a moment and just kind of drill down into the lives of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. I put a picture up here so you can see them. Jonathan Edwards on the left there, George Whitfield on the right. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 in Windsor, Connecticut. And he came from a family of pastors and ministers on his side and his mother's side. Jonathan Edwards, some of you may have heard this, he was a pretty introverted, bookish guy. He was quiet. He entered Yale just shy of 13. Some of us are looking at our 12-year-olds and saying, are you ready for Yale? I certainly wasn't. I was ready to take out the garbage, and that was it. Just reminded of when I wouldn't take out my garbage, my dad would put the garbage cans on my bed as a reminder. <laughs> and it stuck with me these many years later. So the thought of Yale was not in the picture. So he goes to Yale, just shy of 13, graduates in four years, and he's obviously a prodigy. God had given him a mind. While he was studying, he loved science, and then he began to read theology, and he fell in love with theology. And for him, it wasn't dry and boring at all. It was reflection on the glory of God. And so he saw this coalescence between science, looking at the wonder of creation, the stars, the human body, the earth, and the wonder of God, who's behind it all. And he fell in love with the Lord. He fell in love with theology, ends up a pastor of a Congregationalist church there at age 23. He marries a woman named Sarah Pierpont, and he was in this smaller church of 600 and began to see and experience and long for this revival that we're talking about. Now, what's, what's sad about Edward's story, and, and this is important, it wasn't all glorious, he actually ended up voted out of his church and was thrust out of the church where he had been for over 20 years and ended up working on a mission somewhere else in Massachusetts. And he worked with Native Americans and others. He went through a deep season of humility and brokenness. 
He ended up dying from a smallpox inoculation in 1758. And tragically, at 55 years old, but a little bit more about Edwards. He loved to study the scriptures. He loved to pray. He loved to be in the Lord's presence 12, 13 hours a day. And, you know, it's misleading to think that he was holed up somewhere in an ivory tower. He had his door open and people would come and visit all the time. And as you can read in some of his letters, the presence of God was in that study. So people would come to dialogue and converse with Edwards. And the presence of God would brood over them in conversation. And they would oftentimes end up in prayer together. So it wasn't just him locked away somewhere. His door was always open, but he could not get enough of the study of Scripture. And he knew with all that was happening, he had to devote himself to the Word of God, to being in the presence of God, to watching over his own soul. Unfortunately, Edwards, we don't hear discussion about this much, but I want to acknowledge it. He was a slave owner. Jonathan Edwards had a slave, and he later ended up denouncing the slave trade, but he was a creature of his time. He was limited. He ended up coming to his senses and seeing some of the evil, but the truth is he was a slave owner. Before we look at Whitfield, I would just say that Edwards is probably the greatest American theologian that, that we've had, and philosopher for that matter. God had given him a mind, uh, brains on fire, really. And so you read his writings, many of you have, you're familiar, his mind was fully engaged and so was his heart. He was a theologian of the head and heart. Now Whitfield here on the right, Mike likes this because he was from England. He was born in Gloucester, Southwest England, and he was very different than Edwards. They became friends, but he was a stage actor, and he was converted at the University of Oxford when he was 21 years old under the influence of John and Charles Wesley. So here he was planning a, a life of fame and being an actor and all of these things, and the Lord interrupted and said, ah, you're going to be a preacher. And so he went all over England and began to preach. He actually invented outdoor meetings, reinvented them, kind of took Pentecost to England, and he would go outside the Anglican churches and preach, and the power of God would touch people. His reputation spread so much that folks in a colony in Georgia and the United States said, hey, come, come and visit. So in 1738, he came to the American colonies in Georgia and spent time helped start an orphanage, was an amazing man. Jonathan Edwards reached out to him and said, George, would you come to our church in New England? And so in 1740, he came to Jonathan Edwards' church and many other churches in the area. And Edwards says that this man bathed everything in prayer. So if he came to a particular place, he began to soak it. He began to do prayer walks and cry out to God for God to visit, for God to pour out his spirit, for God to save the lost, for God to energize the gospel, to save souls. So he shows up here, 1740, and Edwards wept the whole time he preached. There was something coming out of Whitfield 
the presence and power of God, the presence of the Word of God, full conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Edwards can do nothing but sit there and weep. And he talks about when Whitfield would speak that it would melt people's hearts. And Edwards would say he witnessed what would happen in one hour that would take one or two years. The presence of God that would fall and the impact that it would have on people. So powerful was Whitfield's preaching that Ben Franklin came to hear him a few times. One time in Philadelphia, he came, and we know Ben Franklin was not a Christian. He was a deist at best. And he said hearing George Whitfield so deeply impressed him that he was tempted to become a Christian. He said, I've read war history about generals who could preach to 10,000 at a time, but Whitfield could preach to 30,000. He's a small man, but his voice would project with great power and people were moved. And this is hilarious, but Ben Franklin was hearing him speak one time and he was so deeply moved that he emptied his pockets in the offering that went around for the orphanage. And Franklin had determined beforehand, I'm not giving this guy a penny. I'm not giving a penny to this cause. And before it was over, he emptied out all of his pockets for the orphans in Whitfield's orphanage. So a couple of key leaders. I know there's some minute details and all that, but I think it's important to personalize this a little. These are real people. These are people that struggled, people that wept, people that were desperate. By the way, both of them also, especially Whitfield, he struggled for a healthy marriage. So sometimes I think we view these people in a way that isn't fair to them. These people struggled. They were real human beings and wrestled with things. Let's shift gears here for a moment and look at a few of the characteristics of the Great Awakening that Edwards and Whitfield were witnessing in these colonies. The first thing that was happening is in the 40s, especially 1740 and 43, the power of God visiting this region, it brought with it a kingdom obsession. Sam Storm says that the revivals, the presence of God became the talk of the town. Um, Edward says this, the minds of the people were wonderfully taken off from the normal affairs of the world. Their primary concern was the kingdom of heaven and pressing into it. This is no more clearly seen than in his wife, Sarah Edwards' life. Jonathan Edwards' wife, Sarah, ended up having a series of encounters with the Lord. You want to hear about one? I think this is rather beautiful. I heard this many years ago, and I love reading about it every time. Jonathan Edwards puts this in one of his letters that circulates, and he's trying to be anonymous. So he doesn't mention that this is my wife, and he doesn't mention her gender. But for privacy's sake, listen to what he says. The soul of this person dwelt on high and was lost in God and seemed almost to leave the body at times. The mind dwelt in a pure delight that fed and satisfied it, enjoying pleasure without the least sting or any interruption. There were extraordinary views of divine things, i.e. visions, religious affections being stirred, 
great effects on the body. Nature often sinking under the weight of divine discoveries and the strength of the body would be taken away. The person was, de <laughs> listen to this, deprived of all ability to stand or speak at times. So all of that translates, my wife was wrecked. The Lord visited her multiple times. And they had 11 children. So you can imagine running a household while you're intoxicated by the presence of God was probably difficult, but she did it. Somehow she managed. And I can only imagine what that was like for them as a couple. Listen to what he said. I love this quote, and we'll move on after this. But there are certain seasons, he's still writing about her, in which this great being, the Lord of the universe, in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything else except to meditate on him. So what a beautiful person who is open to and longing for the presence of God. It wasn't just about Jonathan. It was about Sarah as well. The two of them were partners in revival, partners in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there was kingdom obsession. Another thing, quickly here, there was a widespread impact. Sam Storms talks about this in his book, but he talks about 30-plus communities simultaneously experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He talks about a spirit of worship that was everywhere in these colonies. There was hardly a place you could go where you weren't aware of the tangible presence of God. And the presence of God impacted women, slaves, and many other who were other people who were marginalized at the time. Lord, do it again, huh? One other thing that was happening was miracles. And this was interesting among all of these hardcore Calvinists, many of them who believed that the age of miracles was over. And the Lord said, no, it's not. I'm going to reinitiate it here in 1740 for you to watch one pastor who was deeply Calvinistic and deeply cessationist for a while, believed the gifts had ceased. Listen to what he said as he watched what happened. The apostolic times seem to have returned upon us. Such a display has there been of the power and grace of the divine spirit in the assemblies of God's people and such testimonies he has given to the word of the gospel. That was William Cooper, a pastor in Boston. You want to hear a story about someone who was actually healed? I love this miracle story. Well, if you don't, I'm going to share it anyway. Her name was Mercy Wheeler, and she was in this great awakening that was happening, and she was a disabled woman from Plainfield, Connecticut. She couldn't walk. Her legs wouldn't function. So in 1743, she was at one of these revival meetings, and she was sitting there, and Scripture began to flood her mind. She began to think about the Gospels and all the healing that Jesus performed on other people like her. And she began to ask inside in prayer, Jesus, why can't you do this for me too? Why can't you heal me? And at that moment, she began to feel the presence of God and a strength surge through her body 
No one praying for her. The Lord sovereignly doing this. And she stood up and began to walk around the room and everyone marveled. So a New Testament-like miracle there in the Great Awakening. And critics, of course, and skeptics said, this is a fake. It'll pass. She was an actor, but she continued to walk for years to come. It was a bona fide miracle, and Edwards and others researched it to demonstrate the veracity of it. So the miraculous working of God along with this. One of the most important things here, and then we'll switch gears and look briefly at this biblical text, but many conversions to Jesus were happening. So it's important to see this here. Between 20, it's difficult to know because of the public records and the records of those who were joining churches, but probably around 35,000 people joined congregational churches alone in the region. And there were 150 new congregationalist churches, of which Edwards was a part, planted during this time. So it would be the equivalent of 25 million converts in today's population there. It was massive. People were coming to Jesus like they had never seen before. And what they were witnessing was two things. When revival comes, when an outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes, something happens internally within the church. The people of God are awakened, affections are moved, new worship happens with greater vigor, but a second thing happens, and that is the external movement of God. The unchurched are reached. And Edwards could not get enough of this. He longed to see people experience the salvation of the gospel. This would be a moment when I would say, any questions? If we were in a classroom, and maybe in the future we can do that, find out a way to interact and ask questions, this is a beautiful moment in history. The presence of God moving, God's greatness and the gospel being on full display. It's also important to see, Edwards wrote about this in great detail, people in these meetings would fall out under the power of God. They would have town drunks come in who would be set free from demons. And they would come and the power of God would fall on them, whether it's in worship or the preaching of the word, and they would fall to their knees and groan under conviction. And Edwards and others would write and say they would get up a new person. The power and presence of God's transforming gospel would hit their lives. And so he was constantly saying it's not about external manifestations, it's about inward transformation. And Edwards was always striving to make that clear. What was interesting is he used a particular text, and I want us to look at this briefly. Why? For the future. We're laying some foundations here. If and when the Lord moves, we want to make sure that we have some biblical foundations in place 1 John 4, I'm going to read this, make a couple of comments, and then we'll end with this. 1 John 4, 1 to 12, Jonathan Edwards found that this was like a grid through which he could view the spiritual activity around him. He could use this as a lens, and he would say, 
if the things line up with this passage here, then it's the genuine work of God. If not, then there's something else happening. Perhaps hamburger helper, that's my language. It's not the true work of God. So 1 John 1, 1 through 12, and he raises a few things that helped him and others discern the work of God. So let's, I'm going to read this and make a couple of comments here. Listen to what he says, pointing to the Apostle John's writing here. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. And imagine Jonathan Edwards telling people this in 1740. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now is already in the world. So the first thing that Edwards points out here in verses 1 through 3 is he says, if there's spiritual activity happening, does it exalt Jesus? Does it declare his lordship? Does it reinforce the teachings of the church? A second thing here is found in verses 4 through 5. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them, these false teachers. For the one who is in you, the Spirit of God, is greater than the one who is in the world. They, the false teachers, are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. So a second thing Edwards used this text for was he would say, does the spiritual activity that's happening right here not only glorify Jesus, but does it oppose Satan's interests? Does it wreak havoc in the enemy's camp? And if we had time, I would read some quotes here. But basically, when the Spirit of God moves, the works of the devil are destroyed. And Edwards was constantly looking for that. Show me where people are being set free. Show me where those who are bound are liberated. Show me where addictions are broken. Show me where a marriage is transformed. So does it oppose? A third thing found in verse 6 here. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So Edwards looks at this passage and says, does the spiritual activity point people to Scripture? Does it point people to the teachings of Christ and the apostles? Because that's what the apostle John is saying here. Fourthly, quickly, verse 6b, the second part of verse 6. The Apostle John says this, from this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so Edwards would use this again and he would say, does this spiritual activity lead people deeper into biblical truth? If it doesn't, then it's probably something else. I just want to say in the coming days, Lord, as you send your spirit with great power, take us deeper into the written word of God. You with me? Some, for some reason, in the history of revivals, the spirit of God moves and there's a subtle shift. It's always good people and they shift to the external manifestations or they shift to a preoccupation with dreams and visions and revelations while neglecting the Bible. The Apostle John and Jonathan Edwards would say, no, 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 no. Where the Spirit of God moves, Christ is exalted, and we go deeper into Scripture. Amen? 
And that is what Edwards is arguing for. And frankly, it's like gasoline. We should be hungry and long for this because it fuels revival activity. A last thing here found in verses 7 through 12 that Edwards was pointing to. Listen to this. This is beautiful. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. So Edwards looks at that and he says, does the spiritual activity result in love? Love for one another, love for God, love for a broken world. So this gives us an example of God's mighty power in human history. Looking at the historical context, a couple of leaders, a few elements and lessons, and then this foundational biblical text. Next week, we're going to look at the Pentecostal movement, early 1900s. We're going to see again how they dealt with the move of God that was happening among them. How did they search the scriptures? What were they doing to keep it on track? I just want to end this morning. Maybe we can have the the worship team come up. And I'm going to ask you in these final moments, if this is something that burns in your heart, you want to see the Lord do it again. Let's ask him for it. So Lord, I pray that those who are, this is burning in their heart. I pray that they would be further gripped by it. That you would put a spirit of awakening on them. That you would cause it to rise up within them. Lord, I pray that you would stoke prayer in us, that we would long for you, that we would look to you, that we would ask you to move again in this moment. Lord, visit us. Lord, visit this region, not just New England in 1740s, but Oklahoma City and Edmond in this region. Would you visit us, Lord? I pray that you would make us desperate. pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Ministry team